0: You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're speaking with Terry Greer. Terry was a big district superintendent for over 20 years in four different states. He made Houston the best big urban district in the country. But his most important legacy is that to date, 81 women and men who've worked for him have gone on to lead school districts. He's America's superintendent coach. Listen in as he talks with Tom about hiring and developing talent.
1: Hey, Terry Greer, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Hey, Tom, it's my pleasure. Good talking with you. What a treat to have you on. Um, Terry, where did you go to high school? I went to high
2: school in a little community in southeast North Carolina, a little town called Fairmont. And it was small. It was a tobacco town back in the day. It's located really a little closer to South Carolina than anywhere else in North Carolina. It's, it's so far back that they pumped sunshine in
1: when I was a kid, we like to say. <laughs> um, why did you, why and when did you decide to become a biology teacher? Well, it was
2: interesting. Uh, I can recall being in high school and going with two friends to the uh, guidance counselor's office, and they were going to paid to take the SAT. And as we were uh, making the trip and started talking, they were talking about college. And as we got in the counselor's office, I can recall uh, she asking, she asked me right in front of the two of them, why, why was I there? And I said, well, I just, just came down with these guys. Uh, and she said, well, uh, they're signing up to take a test to get into college. Uh, I think the military would be a really good option for you. And I had a teacher that was standing there, and he said, uh, no, he's going to college as well. And uh, here is his fee to take the SAT. And I think it was 20, 25 bucks back then. It was so long ago. Uh, but that that's how I, I started thinking about college. My, my, neither of my parents went to college. They both wanted me to go. I ended up going to East Carolina University primarily because I went to football camp there as a senior in high school, and that was um, my experience with with college, and I thought, well, okay. And uh, just the story of becoming a, a teacher and a biology teacher, it's uh, it's a long, twisted story, but it's something I've never regretted. I really enjoyed the classroom and, and missed it.
1: Why school administration? When did you decide you wanted to lead a school and then a system
2: Again, that's a funny story. Um, I was uh, not only teaching, I was also coaching and was giving thought, uh, had, had been a successful coach and had given thought to the next step in the career. And a, a small college had contacted me about the possibility of working as a baseball coach there. And I'd started back to school, in-school administration uh, at the suggestion of the Principal of the school, and so I was talking to my advisor about it, and and he they weren't paying baseball coaches much in those days, and I remember him saying to me, "Son, you need to get serious about your future. You can't eat a baseball," <laughs> and I'm, I still can see him saying that to me, and he was really serious about it, and a big part of it was the, the principal that we had at the time was a great guy, but. We used to go to teachers' meetings and we would sit there while he would read uh, to us for two hours. And I used to think, my goodness, we can all read. And as I watched him in the job, I kept thinking, you know, this is something I know I could do. And that's kind of how it got started. Uh, I enjoyed working with young people, but I also enjoyed working with adults too. And so I thought, I was a department chair. I thought, well, you know, gosh, if you're in charge of an entire school, uh, you can have more impact on a lot more kids than if you're just in charge of a classroom or of a department. And so that's really what, in my mind, was the motivator to move in to, to school administration. And it just cascaded from there to, you know, if you're working, leading one school, if you're a superintendent, you can lead a Number of schools, and you also can impact the entire community.
1: Yeah, isn't that true, Terry? I think we've both early in our lives came to appreciate that um, that a good superintendent can probably do more to change the way a community thinks about itself and its kids and its future than any other job.
2: I can't. I can't think of another. It is just, and the young men and women I work with and and coach and mentor. Uh, that's the message. That's the message I tell them as you start thinking about what you do uh, as a school superintendent. Don't forget the impact you have on the entire community. I always believe that the type of job you did as a, a superintendent, as a district leader, uh, the kind of job you did today has an impact on that community. Eight years, 10 years, 12 years from now. And yeah. I, there's no question in my mind that that's true.
1: Terry, uh, you went on to uh, be America's superintendent. Uh, you you were superintendent in in uh, four big systems for twenty years. A really amazing legacy. I would love to take a lap around the country and and just have you recount a leadership lesson from. Each of the systems you led, I think the first place you were superintendent was Williamson County in Franklin, Tennessee. That's just south of Nashville. For folks that don't know, that's a that's a pretty big system.
2: Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a big district. Um, when I was in Williamson County, it was a it was an exciting school district. Uh, it was not the first, but we'll start with that one. And in, in Williamson, it was interesting in that we had very wealthy kids. Uh, A lot of the country western stars lived there. A lot of of the pro athletes from Nashville lived there. The district's immediately south of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, But we also had kids that were very poor. And we had a lot of kids in that district that were disconnected. And so I had been to New York and had visited LaGuardia Middle College High School and it was a, a small high school located on a community college campus for right. kids for kids that were disconnected. Kids that were not on didn't blanca the annual staff, didn't play sports. They just they might go to school because they liked Tom Van der Ark's physics class and would make an A in there but they hated everything else and that's the only class they would go to. So I thought, gosh, this would really fit at our place. And as I started examining that concept, uh, well, I quickly realized I got a problem here because uh, hmm, we don't have a college or a community college in our, our county. And so I decided that uh, versus that being something that were getting my way, I went to, to Nashville in a, a different school district and talked to the president of a community college there. And he agreed to allow us to set up a school at his college. And people were telling me, you can't do it. You can't open a high school in another school district. But, but there was no law that kept us from doing that. And, and we did. And so it's, I think, too many times people give up on ideas uh, when they, they really shouldn't. And I can recall going to the school board president at that time and talking with her about wanting to serve these children, and she really got angry and upset and said she could not support that, that if these children would just behave, if they wouldn't dye their hair purple, if they didn't have body piercing, that... That, you know, gosh, they could just get in and fit in like everyone else. And I remember coming home and talking to my wife about it. I was really upset and she started laughing. <laughs> and She said, you know, you're, you're not framing this right. Uh, think about the way you're framing it and presenting it to her. And that was a lesson in leadership I learned from Nancy. I thought about it for a day or two. Uh, I let a week or two go by. I met with her again. I said, you know, we have a lot of these kids in our schools that don't fit in, particularly at the high school level, and they're keeping other kids from getting a good education. And I've got an idea where we could move these kids out of our high schools, put them in another school and educate them together, and then the kids in our traditional high school would would certainly be able to get a different type of education. And absolutely loved it, endorsed it, became a big champion for it, and that school saved an awful lot of kids. It was a, a great opportunity and a good lesson in leadership that often, as a leader, how you frame and how you present ideas. How you create a sense of urgency using data uh, makes all the difference in the world.
1: That's a great story. Terry, I bet you met uh, Cece Cunningham at the Middle College of LaGuardia. Does that sound right?
2: A great friend, a great lady, one of the, the best educators I've ever met. Just a phenomenal, phenomenal leader.
1: Yeah, I met her in the fall of 99 and she was one of the people that really helped invent the early college movement in America. She was prominent in the middle college movement that really started with a grant from the, the Ford Foundation. So great story there. It's about visiting other schools, being open to new ideas, um, innovating for equity, uh, being thoughtful about building your case, um, building support for change. Sounds like a lot of those were early lessons.
2: Uh, absolutely. And and uh, I agree with what you just said, Tom. A lot of it is benchmarking, going out and seeing best practices and and trying to think about how that might fit your situation. You don't have to absolutely replicate something uh, with fidelity. As a matter of fact, you might decide to to take an idea and and change it, tweak it, make make it different. And as a result, it may better fit where you are. And that's one of the things I know when I, over the years, as I've tried to hire people to work in leadership roles, I always, always tried to hire very bright people. I used to laugh and say, you know, gosh, when I got in a room with my team, I, I wanted I wanted to be the dumbest guy in the room. I wanted everybody else to really be bright. And I also wanted people to be creative, because if you, if you do see an idea that you think is outstanding, In its present form, it might not quite fit your culture. But these creative, innovative people that uh, also uh, are adaptive, can can adapt themselves and can adapt different concepts and ideas. uh, That's the ticket. That's who you hire. And I've, I've always said as a superintendent, I never I, I believe this. I never wanted to hire anyone and never hired anyone that was a direct report that did not have the ability to become a superintendent one day.
1: We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But you, you had the chance to move from uh, Tennessee back to North Carolina and you took over Guilford County. You were there from 2000 to 2008. What what was your big takeaway from Guilford
2: uh, Guilford, uh, it was interesting. We started that little middle College in uh, in Tennessee, in, in a different school district in in Nashville. And when I came to Guilford County, I remember during the interview, I asked the Board of Education what was their top priority. And it was a, it was a big board. Tommy had eleven board members, but I was very surprised at how quick they just jumped on dropout rate. I mean, that it was almost. It was like a unanimous chorus of the board, dropout rate. And I said, well, okay, Um, I've been looking at some data that was a concern of mine, to be frank with you, because your dropout rate is quite quite large. Let me ask you a question, what percent percent of your budget do you have dedicated for anything that would resemble uh, dropout awareness, dropout prevention, uh, dropout remediation? What, what, What are you doing to address this issue? Uh, and it could be—I mean, it, we could tie it right back to third-grade reading, kindergarten through first-grade attendance. I mean, anything, any strategy, and—and and they did not know. And so, as we looked, it was less than one-tenth of one percent of our budget. So, one of the things that that I learned uh, as a leader is when you identify issues or problems, uh, you've got to make sure that your resources are aligned to help you have the what you need to address that problem. And you were talking, we were talking about middle colleges and early colleges early. Um, when I was in Guilford, we started nine uh, middle colleges, and we started the second early college in America. I think Bard was maybe the first, and then the early college at Guilford was the second. And that's where very bright kids actually attend school at that university their freshman and sophomore year taught by our teachers. But beginning their junior year, they simply enrolled in college, took all college courses. We paid tuition. We negotiated a reduced rate for those kids. And in two years, when they graduated high school, they had finished two years of of college at Guilford College. Uh, So that was the first early, true early college in North Carolina. And later, as we kept massaging our middle colleges, At that time, Bill Gates came to North Carolina with Governor Jim Hunt, took a look at our middle colleges and tried to convince us to change and move them more towards the early college model. So the the big lesson in Guilford, I think, was making sure that at the central level that we have our resources aligned to help remediate or correct the problems we've identified. And then I realized quickly that that had to be the same had to be exactly the same formula you use at the school level. I've seen a number of schools want to spend $50,000 to purchase a new playground or new playground equipment, and yet they have the lowest math scores of any school in the district, and we're doing nothing to help train math teachers or to buy math manipulatives, for example, for kids.
1: After Guilford, you moved to San Diego for a few years, took on a really big challenge. What did you learn at uh, San-, San Diego Unified?
2: Well, San Diego Unified was an interesting place. We loved it. We, who could not love San Diego? Right. Um, the teachers union there was a challenge. Uh, all all child, no no child focus, all adult focus, and perhaps that's what unions do, but I can recall there that uh, early on, almost anything we tried to do to improve the district, uh, it was just cut off at the at the knees by the teachers union. So one of the things we, we began doing, um, we, were gonna do it, we did it anyway, but I mean, we really started focusing hard on it. Anything we did, we really empowered and involved teams of teachers. And so when we got ready to make a presentation to the board, It was not me or a member of my cabinet or a principal making the presentation. It was a small group of teachers. And it really put the board in a tough position of having to say no or tabling or wanting more information before they would approve a reading program. Or I remember we were at that time, we were implementing the concept of SMART goals into the district. And it really had a huge impact on the the school system. I remember when we won won the the Bro Prize while I was at Houston, um, San Diego was also in that final group of uh, four districts. And a lot of that, I'm fully convinced, came from the improvement they saw utilizing the smart goal concept of really tackling problems and and making sure that you you had things you could measure and you could set goals that were, realistic and that you could achieve. Uh, so I think what I learned there was that there's different ways to lead. And one of the ways that we were able to lead effectively there was through a a, a degree of involvement that probably was a, a little more dramatic than it would have been had had the union not had so much influence
1: over the board. Then you moved to Houston, uh, 2009, and you had, a, a really great, uh, seven, seven and a half year run there. What, uh, what'd you learn in Houston? Well,
2: Houston was, uh, is an interesting place and, uh, we love living in Houston more than anywhere we'd, we'd ever been. It's hot as heck in the summer, but take that away. It's just, it was just a great, great place to live. Uh, one of the things that in Houston is as as you move from small district to a little larger district to even a much larger district to the sixth or seventh largest district in the country, uh, what you realized is how difficult it was to scale uh, and how important it was that every opportunity to hire a leader was the most critical decision that you were going to make as a school superintendent. And I I just had the philosophy there that if you could hire a great leader, you're better off not hiring one at all. And you're better off having an interim and you keep looking, you keep developing, you keep working. But Houston more than anywhere else really reinforced the importance of having just really great leaders in every role that, that you needed a leader. And that was that. That was key. I remember we replaced 87 principals one summer, and these men and women were good people, and many of them had been in their schools for 12, 15 years. Uh, Some went to church with board members. Um, Some were, were friends of people in the teachers union. But their schools had regressed, their, their, their student enrollment had gone down, their test scores had declined, out-of-school suspensions were up. And we, we worked and spent, invested a lot of money and time and effort in two years. And the, the big lesson, I guess, there was, there are some people that no matter how hard you work, how long you work with them, they either just simply cannot or will not lead. And in those cases, quite frankly, uh, you try to find something else for them in the organization. And if you can't, uh, as painful as it is and as difficult as it is, they just have to move on, Tom.
1: Uh, Terry, you, uh, Houston may have been the first place where you had the presence of uh, really significant chartered school presence, where you had big scaled operators that... Um, that posed really significant competition for the school district, and it seems like you developed an interesting—I uh, don't know if you'd call it co but you you at least learned from them and became uh, quite uh, competitive with their offerings. Is that fair to say in a couple different ways, both both with magnet schools and turnaround schools?
2: Absolutely, and and the people that were leading. Uh, those charters, three of the biggest charter networks in the country, KPS and Harmony. And right. the leaders were just great educators, good people, uh, passionate about what they did. I remember mm-hmm. my first week in, in Houston, they held a, a joint press conference, the three of them, and said their goal was to triple enrollment in the next uh, five years. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, where are those kids coming from? They're going to trip in but you know, they already got a lot of kids where are they? they're going kind to of be coming from from my schools. And so we talked about it as a staff, and I just said, you know, geez, uh, choice is something that I've always uh, been a little different about. I've, I've always embraced. I've always felt parents ought to have a right to decide where their kids go to school. But I said to my team, if if they choose not to come here, it's going to be For different reasons. It's not gonna have anything to do with quality. It's not gonna have anything to do with how we treat and respect parents. And I was there seven years and we grew in seven years by 16,000 kids. And we saw charter schools close. And I remember my first state of the district address, uh, I invited those um, charter network uh, superintendents, if you will, to attend. And basically, I, I told the entire audience of over 2,500 people, I said they had a they had a press conference. Uh, they're all here. They said they were going to increase size. Uh, they were going to triple the, their size in in five years. And what I'd say is, guys, just put your helmets on and buckle your chin strap because the game's on. And we created a, a, a portfolio of options for uh, parents and children. I think that rivaled any in the country. We went from having three partial dual language schools to having over 59 dual language schools in our district. We had the first Chinese dual language immersion elementary school in Texas. We had the first Arabic dual language immersion school in the country. Uh, we offered German, we offered French, and we opened the first energy high school in America. Uh, and it was, it was. Phenomenal. But I, having having said that, Tom, we also provided transportation for uh, Kevin. and Yes, and we did it at no cost to them.
1: Well, it, all of those things made um, what many of us think uh, w- w- made, made Houston the best district in uh, America, at least among uh, big urbans. Um, you won the Broad Prize. You won a big uh, Race to the Top grant. The track record is really remarkable and it it makes it really ironic and unfortunate in some ways that we're talking today when the state uh, just took over the district uh, just three years after you left. And I guess it's sad to see, um, maybe it just illustrates the importance of quality ethical leadership and, and in its absence, how quickly Uh, situations can devolve, right? Very sad day in uh, Houston today.
2: Yeah, it it was a sad day. I also think that it it also underlines something that uh, too few people talk about. I think it's a role of the superintendent. You also have to, it's a fine line you walk between uh, working for a board, working with the board, and, and trying to help mold or lead a board. And some people would say, you know, board leadership is not the superintendent's responsibility.
1: It has to be, right?
2: Yeah, Yeah, it has to be, it it really does. I I can remember being in Houston and, you know, people would ask me about my board and say, I got one of the best boards in the country. Well, I I had some good board members, but I also can remember uh, the year that we won the Broad Prize. I can remember that same year we won a $12 million Race to the Top grant. I remember that year I got all kinds of recognitions, the Council of Great City Schools National Superintendent of the Year. I had good people. It was not me. But Tom, I can remember that year there was an article in the New York Times, front page, a color photograph, and it said something to the effect, if any urban district in history has ever had a better year than Houston ISD, we can't find any evidence of it. And I remember that year when I did my uh, they did my evaluation. We were in closed session. And uh, the board president said, well, Terry, do you have anything you want to say before we get into talking about your performance? Uh, I just passed out a copy of that article. And uh, I said, I think this article, I, th- I guess you guys have seen it or read it. We sent you a copy. I said, I think it says most of what I want to say. And uh, one of them said, "One of them said, uh, but Terry, you know, we don't care about things like that. And started giggling and two or three others giggled and it it, it i didn't get upset or anything i just smiled i said well i think a lot of you care about these kinds of things because these kind of things really get at why we are here we're here for kids and we're here for the children of houston and you know it was kind of fascinating to hear someone sit there and say we don't care about those kinds of things and it does it, it, it's always i've always been concerned i don't have the answer but i've always worried about governance, school governance in this country i think we're the only country in Amer- in the world that has school boards and yeah, i don't i don't i don't know what you do instead of them and i'm not advocating for them to be abolished but i can tell you this you cannot you cannot be a a great superintendent or a great leader unless your board is allows you, or is willing to work with you, uh, to make that happen. You, you just, it's just, I don't see how it's possible.
1: Uh, Terry, I want to finally get to the punchline, and and the reason that I gave you a call the other day. Um, I travel around the country, and there's not a city that I go to where I don't run into a Terry Greer
0: <laughs> protege.
1: Um, you've done more to develop educational talent than anyone in, in history. I'm quite certain of that. Um, with a little digging, I found out that 81 men and women that have worked with you have gone on to lead school districts. Um, that's probably two or three times more than anybody else could claim it, number one it, it's just such a wonderful and powerful legacy you got to feel really proud of that but more than that it suggests that um, there's more to the this story than just leading big systems for 20 years it it suggests that you had a different hiring criteria and you thought differently about growing talent and um, You've talked a little bit about this in the podcast already, but um, I, I guess I'd love your philosophy um, of hiring first. What what is it that you look for when you're trying to hire a, a school leader or a, somebody on the leadership team in a district?
2: Well. You know, all that's very kind. I've I've been fortunate, uh, Tom, to work with some of the, the best and brightest men and women in, in education in this country. Um, you know, I've I've always thought when you you look at hiring people, uh, we've talked a little bit about this uh, before, but I've always wanted, I've always tried to find unusually gifted people, talented people and i've always been open to to thinking a little outside of the box i can remember like yesterday when i was in san diego and um we were looking for a chief information technology officer and uh, a real good friend of mine uh, there matt spathis who's in the business community there uh matt was way ahead of his time from a technology perspective and we I was talking with him and brainstorming with him about uh, people that we needed to look at. And we started interviewing people and talking to people. And then this person came uh, to our attention that had been the the IT guy in a smaller district outside of San Diego, Lemon Grove ISD, and his name was Daryl Agase. And Daryl called and talked to Daryl, and Daryl said to me, well, I, 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 I don't, I would not be comfortable applying in San Diego. And I said, why? He said, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to embarrass you. And I said, why, what are you talking about? He said, well, I only have a high school degree. And I said, well, (laughs) that's all, that's all that uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and a lot of other people in IT have is high school degrees. They didn't graduate from college. Why is that an issue and a problem? And it didn't bother me at all because of his skill set, his talent. Um, I remember, remember in Houston ISD uh, promoting Rick Cruz from a fifth grade teacher to an assistant superintendent for college completion. I didn't know anyone in the country that had um, a position called college completion. I, I knew people that had jobs career college ready, but I was more interested in kids graduating from college. And I was particularly interested in our our poor kids that had high potential uh, going to tier one Ivy League schools. As I would go to high school graduations and shake hands of kids wearing honors cords and beta club collars and say, where are you going to college? Where are you going to school? And these kids would say local community college or a local school that didn't even have admission requirements. But you didn't hear Harvard or Penn. And so Cruz helped us develop the Emerge program there in Houston. And uh, last year, 479 kids from Houston uh, got accepted to and attend, now attend, Tier 1 Ivy League schools tuition-free. But Rick is this unusual talent. And I can remember, even with with the smart people I had on my team, when I announced to my team what we were doing by bringing Rick in, I had some blowback and pushback, and it was, well, you can't move a fifth grade teacher into an assistant superintendent position. He's not been a principal. I so said, what does that have to do with the job that we want him to do? And and, and I think that, again, if you you focus on hiring bright people that are creative, uh, that, that are adaptable and, and, you know, can be flexible, that's what I always
1: tried to look for. Terry, uh, is it, it – is it, um... I've heard Mark Zuckerberg say the same. I've tried to hire people smarter than you uh, for your leadership team, but it, it probably can be a little bit intimidating when you have a room full of people that could, uh, you know, are capable of doing your job.
2: Well, it it never intimidated me. Uh, maybe, maybe it's because I wasn't <laughs> smart enough for it to intimidate me. Uh, you know, I always felt like my role as superintendent and my role as as a leader was to to basically get those kind of bright people in a room really take a hard deep dive look into the data about the organization and come to some consensus with them about what our major problems were and then we really we really went after it a little differently than a lot of other people we we tried to really focus on on, on an issue, try to make tremendous progress on that issue, then move to another issue. I think too many people in education and, and, and leadership, uh, I look at all these strategic plans. I've seen so many strategic plans, Tom, that if you implemented everything in the plan with fidelity, nothing would get better. And th- they have 900 different strategies. And what you see is that every school board member, every community group, they have one pet project in a strategic plan and 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 I, th- I think often that if you could focus on one or two key things that everybody could could really rally around and, and put your energy and your effort, your resources towards solving them, that you're going to win the broad Prize. Uh, you're going to be recognized as one of the better school districts in the country. I just think too many districts, too many schools, they, they, when you try to do everything you, you can't do anything, and, and that's what I see a lot of. Yeah. And so you, you get bright you get bright people like that in a room, uh, man. The creativity and, and what's fascinating about that with those kinds of people, what I found is very seldom did you see them attack each other. But but the good ones, oh my goodness, when you came in with an idea, whether it was me with an idea, they some of them used to say he has Terry Epic ideas. He just has too many Terry Epic ideas. Well. You take a Terry idea like Emerge, with that idea that I came up with about poor kids wanting to go to college. You you turn it over to Rick Cruz, and by the time he and his team get finished with that Terry idea, it's 20 times better than anything I would have come up with. And that's what's excited about working with these folks, Tom.
1: I, I appreciate that you continue to uh, reflect on leadership every day in the last few hours. You've you were tweeting about um, leadership development. People ought to follow you at T. Greer, H-I-S-D. You said a few hours ago, when you hire a superstar, don't be afraid of modifying outdated job descriptions to take advantage of their skill. Get, get out of the silos of yesterday's compartmentalization. In an earlier tweet, you talked about getting smart people on the bus and then worrying about the right seat. So... You you really do take a talent first approach, right?
2: Well, I can remember uh, Drew Hulehan,
1: who is now the
2: superintendent Union County, North Carolina, and I hired Drew when he was very young as a as an elementary principal in Houston. And after his second year there, I mean, you knew I knew after the first year that he was an unusual talent, and brought him into the central office. And I think I put him in a different chief officer role each year for three years. Uh, because I knew, I just knew where he had the potential to go. And I remember when he was a, a chief HR officer, uh, we were opening a, a new uh, school. We, basically, we were repurposing a school. It was, just, it was in the historic White Ward in Houston. It was Ryan Middle School. And it was a school that had at one time 1,200 kids, and it was down to 288. And I had Drew quietly working with Baylor College of Medicine, or entire year with doctors and professors, and they were developing a curriculum for a college prep uh, medical careers middle school. And he was doing that while he was chief HR officer. <laughs> he was wearing two or three different hats. And that school now is, is full of students. It's one of the best choice schools in the country. And it, kids take Uh, a Latin sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Eighth graders take high school biology and algebra one. It's a title one school. Uh, It's a phenomenal success, but Drew was the one that led that effort. Uh, Another person that very similar to that was Rodney Watson, who's the superintendent now in spring ISD. And I could sit here and I could, I just could keep naming off person by person, district by district, where, you know, they might have a role. uh, Drew might one year have been the chief academic officer for the district, but he was also involved in in other things. And so I think leaders that if you just go in and have departments and they get to to be waist deep in, in silos, you don't take advantage of your talent. Uh, We used something, a concept that uh, Xerox used to use a year ago. Tom, I know you've you've used it, project teams. And we would have cross-functional people coming in from different departments working on a particular project that we were trying to solve or a program that we were trying to implement. And often what we found was someone out of a totally different department would come up with a concept, an idea that no one else had thought about. That, that really made a lot of sense and was the key to our success.
1: All right, Terry, last, last thought for this morning. Um, of the 81 people that, uh, that you helped to develop who have gone on to lead systems, many of them are women and people of color. Uh, you must be proud of the, the equity... Um, progress that you have helped to create it it's really exciting to see such a diverse group of people that have come out of uh, places like Houston and San Diego and Guilford
2: you know Tom uh, I, as I said earlier I was, was lucky to be able to work with so many bright people and during a long career when you're around a lot of bright people that are, are so gifted you get recognized and you receive honors and awards. Um, quite frankly, sometimes I think undeservingly. Uh, It was more about what the teachers in the district did, what the principals did. Um, That was the Bro Prize. But I I guess I'm probably uh, more proud of that than anything else that I was associated with during my time in education. Um, You know, school districts like Houston, where we were 92% non-white, kids in that district need to have leaders that look like them, that talk like them, that they can relate to. They need to have models of of success. And, you know, people that that can tell you, oh, I just just don't have enough uh, teachers of color or I don't have enough uh, teachers, minority teachers. Well, it's sometimes I think, quite frankly, it's because uh, if, if you don't have something, it's because you don't want it badly enough. I know in Uh, five districts I worked in, we started scholarship loan programs for high school seniors that were the top 15 percent of their graduate class. We focused on on young women and we focused on kids of color who would go to local colleges and universities and get degrees, teaching degrees and come back and teach for us. And we did the same thing in Houston. Houston now has 100 kids a year that come back to Houston ISD to teach that went to the University of Houston. We did the very same thing with teachers when we wanted to c- to grow our bench strength for administrators. We would offer teachers scholarships to go get their master's degree and we would pay for it and then give them jobs when they came back. And a lot of those uh, people that we offered those scholarship loans to were, were young women and, or women and also uh, young men of color.
1: Terry, it's been a treat to have you on the podcast Um there's a lot of us that really uh, respect the work that you've done. The 81 people that have gone on to lead systems are just a small indication of the, the gift that uh, you've been to American public education. So we, we appreciate you joining us this morning and thanks for an amazing career.
2: Uh, like I said, Tom, thank you for having me. And again, Uh, Sometimes uh, I just enjoyed the ride so much because of the caliber of people that I was able to ride with. Uh, Great, great, great people, great leaders, uh, all dedicated and cared deeply about kids.
0: A big thanks to Dr. Greer for joining us on today's episode. We so appreciate his commitment to leadership development and his national legacy of training more than 80 superintendents. For more, listen to our episode with Dallas Superintendent Michael Hinojosa. We've got it linked in the show notes and on the blog. And before you go, don't forget to leave us a rating and hit subscribe. We love reading your feedback and you don't want to miss out on any future episodes. That's it for today, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.